Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. Without forgiveness, there is no future. So said Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and he should know. He famously chaired South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which gave perpetrators of violence the opportunity to give testimony and also allowed them to request amnesty from civil and criminal prosecution where that was appropriate. It was a very hands-on and in some ways controversial sort of forgiving. For many of us, forgiving is either a personal matter or in some cases something only God can do. And too often, perhaps, the notion of forgiveness has been wrapped in a cocoon of religious exclusivity, which is misleading and somewhat immoral. Yes, the F word, forgiveness, is our subject this week. Dr. Kitty Alone, research fellow and outreach manager here at the Wolf Institute, is leading a project based on a more cross-cultural and interreligious approach to forgiveness. It's called Forgiveness and Future Building and aims to provide practical resources to inform strategy and policymaking in post-conflict countries. And it's taking place in Bosnia, Northern Ireland and South Sudan. Kitty is joined on the project and on today's podcast by Dr. Justin Lane. Justin, a self-styled mind hacker, aims to bring cognitive science, big data and AI together to create a sort of science of forgiveness. He undertook his PhD at Oxford University's Institute of Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology and now works for the Centre for Modelling Social Systems in Christensen, Norway, and is currently based in Bratislava. Let's start with a clip from the Naked Reflection show, Forgiving. Sister Gemma Simmons speaks about how crucial and how difficult it is to forgive. I spent 26 years working as a volunteer chaplain in a prison in this country, And I worked all the time I was there with people who were unable to forgive themselves. You know, women who'd murdered their own children, uh, people who'd killed their partners, I mean, people who'd done terrible things. And 
the horror that they carried of what they had done was almost unbearable. Kitty, wearing your social scientist's hat, is there research on what damage being unable to forgive can do? Yes, Ed, indeed there is, and particularly within like the therapeutic and sort of um, psychotherapy literature. So people who are able to forgive interpersonal transgressions often sort of demonstrate much lower levels of anger, less depression, less anxiety. So for those people that are unable to let go or to forgive, you often find that there's this conglomeration of mental disorders that follow, so heightened depression and anxiety, for example. So yes, it seems in some cases, and I emphasize some cases, it seems that being unable to forgive can have detrimental effects on mental health. Justin, does your work on cognitive science, big data, AI shed light on forgiveness? And if so, how? I think it does. Increasingly, the the AI world is becoming interested in a lot of social issues. And you see this a lot in the social media space, for example, where people are looking at all of the sort of cultural conflict that feels like is taking place on places like Twitter and Facebook. And there's a lot of infighting. And where there's infighting, there's a chance for reconciliation. And in that area, of course, you know, we do see a lot of hate speech, uh, particularly around the areas of things like white nationalism and anti-Semitism. And so the leader of that company, Bill Ottman, uh, came to myself and my co-founder, Laurent Schultz, at the University of Ogder about a year ago and asked what we could do as cognitive scientists and AI experts to try and create a de-radicalization pipeline that kind of combats the radicalization pipeline that the big tech companies have inadvertently created with their AI. So we're kind of trying to turn the narrative that we hear so much in the media on its head um, and trying to create sort of an AI for peace and de-radicalization online and offline. And Kitty, presumably that relates to your project in these three very different parts of the world, Northern Ireland, South Sudan and Bosnia. Yes, absolutely. So as you said, the project focuses on post-conflict societies and in particular how cross-cultural interreligious conceptualizations of forgiveness affect the future building or affect the post-conflict society and the identity. So we're focusing on Northern Ireland, the Balkans and South Sudan. And what's interesting about Northern Ireland and the Balkans, of course, is that you have an entire generation of people that were born and have grown up in a post-conflict society. They don't have first-hand recollections of conflict. So I am particularly interested in understanding how the memories and the narratives of the past interact with culturally available conceptualizations of forgiveness to inform their own sense of identity. I must be missing something because what I hear is Justin talk about combating hate speech through various techniques and that sort of cocktail of different techniques, ongoing hate speech, and you, Kitty, talking about a post-conflict environment with a generation that's been brought up in relative peace. They seem to be two different things, don't they? On the face of it, trying to look at modern hate speech and trying to compare that to post-conflict societies does seem like it might be at odds. But I think that what's unique is that the approach that we've taken to hate speech is one that's not just related to trying to create statistical AI models that create sort of like a best fit of the words that you're using online. Rather, what we're trying to do is to create psychologically realistic models uh, that we can experiment with in different environments. 
And so this is a little different than the machine learning based approach that people often equate with artificial intelligence and instead is much more rooted in the sort of laboratory experimental work that Kitty is more familiar with. So in this way, we're trying to create a bridge where AI is broadly construed as algorithms that are processing information in the same way that human minds are. Kitty's experimental expertise in the science of forgiveness, and then having that connect and really build off of a foundation of the history of these different groups in Northern Ireland, the Balkans, and South Sudan, so that we can draw a string that wraps the whole project together that's really based in an information processing approach to forgiveness and how group boundaries are crossed peacefully. But oftentimes, these are two sides of the same coin when it comes to how someone views someone in their group and uh, how they view someone outside of their group, how they treat the person outside of their group, if it's with love and kindness or if it's with hate, that's something that happens in the present moment. And, you know, if it's a group that they hated five years ago, but now they can treat with love and kindness, something's happened there that we really need to kind of unlock so that we can hopefully replicate that process in other societies as they go through conflict and come out the other side. Exactly. Post-conflict sort of implies a forward process. So it's this sort of notion that, well, once peace has happened, you know, post-conflict just progresses and peace proceeds. But that's not necessarily the case. We also need to understand the factors that tip a post-conflict society back into violence. So peace and violence are sort of this in this intricate relationship where one doesn't necessarily imply causation. That's fascinating because, you know, what I hear you saying is that you hope Justin's work in particular can pick up those signals and and warnings that perhaps those of us engaged in conflict resolution pick up through our physical engagement, listening, meeting people, picking up those, if you like, social science signals. Whereas Justin, with the data that he collects, both of you, of course, there will be little triggers. Is that where we're going? In a lot of ways, yes. In the project, we're using a kind of AI that we call multi-agent artificial intelligence, and that bridges the gap between the AI that we're used to discussing um, and the modeling and simulation world, where people are creating these sort of digital twin environments and experimenting on social groups in silico, if you will, instead of in situ. You know, they're not looking at trying to replicate everything about the real world, but really just look at the important psychological, historical, environmental contexts that we can simulate in the computers using the AI. And so understanding that, you know, most AI looks at something as one-off as an event, but we need something if we're going to try and address policy and history that can play history more like a video rather than a picture. We don't need to sort of piece build in a snapshot. We need to piece build from where we are now to where we will be in the future. So this new approach to AI and policymaking and community engagement is something that's kind of uniquely positioned in the AI space to do this kind of work. Oh, I think I understand that better now. You'll be pleased to know Kitty and Justin. What sort of practical resource then are you going to come out with? I get where you're trying to go. I get this sort of rather potentially threatening, at least to me, combination of the AI and, as we called it in one episode, the blessed algorithm and the person-to-person interaction. But what sort of practical resources will come out of this? essentially a guidebook, a handbook for 
community mid-level religious leaders who are in post-conflict societies about how to to broker peace, about how to broker reconciliation, drawing on the findings of our project. So that's the main resource that we want to deliver is really like a practical toolkit to help people in this very important sort of gatekeeper position in these societies. They play a role that's sort of fundamental to the peace process, I think. They have credibility within their own communities but they're also in a position where they can sort of bridge between different communities but you know what kitty and justin for that matter as a trying to be humble theologian i tend to think of forgiveness as a personal or metaphysical thing does your work undermine all of that i would say not at all the nature of a multi-agent AI is that you don't just have one AI that's one algorithm to rule them all. Uh, it's really having you know, a variety of AI that can tell you something about a social context. And in that regard, it is an interesting tool, but it's still a very theoretical tool. There still always needs to be a bridge from the output that we have from our AI, no matter how powerful it is, to the local stakeholders and community leaders on the ground. And it's really going to be the interplay between, you know, this novel approach to understanding forgiveness, where hopefully we'll learn something we didn't know before, but it really being implemented on the ground and having some real world effect. Because at the end of the day, that forgiveness process, if you will, really is something that happens, you know, within people over time, not within a computer. Yeah, I think you're completely right, Justin. And, and it's such an interesting question as well, Ed, because... I mean, if I ask you the question, how do you define forgiveness? It suddenly becomes really difficult. I mean, it's almost impossible to answer. And perhaps we shouldn't think of it as a forgiveness. There are different sort of flavours of forgiveness, if you like. So, of course, in the theological space, there's divine forgiveness. You know, this is a very profound relationship between God and the human in terms of sort of who grants forgiveness, the conditions under which it is given, etc. But also things like self-forgiveness, Forgiveness between two people. This interpersonal forgiveness is the most commonly studied process in social psychological literature. But what I am particularly interested in is what we call sort of intergroup forgiveness. So here, some interesting questions are raised. Is this even possible? Because if you think of forgiveness as an interpersonal process, essentially a dyad, if you like, between two individuals, an individual and God, etc. How does this then apply when you're thinking about a transgression that's been committed to you or your group by an abstract entity or more than one person or some historical policy that no longer exists. How does forgiveness work in those scenarios? So, yes, perhaps forgiveness is more plural than we like to think it is. There are many different kinds. And pulling all of those strands together is certainly one of the main theoretical points of interest for me in this project, to see how they interact with each other. How well, it may be of theoretical interest to you, Kitty, and Justin, it's of theological interest to me. And we're going to explore that a little bit more in the second half. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and I'm discussing the F word. Or to unpack their headline, forgiveness. My guests are Kitty Alone and Justin Lane. Let's hear from Gemma Simmons again on the show Forgiving. I had members of my family who went to the Nazi death camps. Okay, they were in the French resistance, they were arrested, father and son, they went to Auschwitz together, they were then separated, father went to Belsen, son went to Buchenwald. Miraculously, they both survived the war. And I often had discussions with the son, Pierre, 
uh, you know, can you forgive these people for what they did to you? And he would always say, that is not mine to forgive. Are there some things that are beyond forgiveness? Now, this is where I think a theological insight would actually be very, very useful. So for somebody that's sort of brought up in a broadly sort of secular slash Western European Christian perspective, the culturally available notion of forgiveness is that it is unconditional. There is nothing that cannot be forgiven. But, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Ed, I think this is something that is particularly salient within Christianity. And I do not know whether the same thing exists in Judaism and, and Islam, for example. Are there things in Judaism that are unforgivable? Well, I love the fact that you throw back my question as a question, Kitty. And may I say, uh, as a Jewish theologian, that's a very Jewish thing to do. But are there things that are unforgivable? I think this is less a specifically Jewish response and more the religious response. The bottom line is that if somebody who has committed an act that requires forgiveness and seeks forgiveness, genuinely seeks forgiveness from the person against whom that act has been committed, then that person is required to forgive. Now, the difficulty comes when the act has been committed against somebody else in your group, maybe a previous generation, because it's not easy to forgive the sins against somebody that's not yourself. But then you go on to that really interesting question of intergroup forgiveness, Kitty. My own view is there needs to be an acceptance that some people have been so traumatized by the actions taken against them that it's very hard for them to forgive personally. But society might have forgiven. But where does your work take you to? I mean, are there limits then that you don't want to go because, frankly, it's too difficult? Well, there are areas where it is extremely difficult. So let's think of what we call interpersonal forgiveness. So an individual commits a wrongdoing against another individual. That's quite a sort of culturally available script that forgiveness follows in that case. The wrongdoer or the transgressor is remorseful. They apologise. They ask for forgiveness. And the victim grants them forgiveness and they restore their relationship and they move forward. What becomes difficult is cases where you don't have those sort of essential ingredients to the forgiveness recipe. So let's think of, you know, if we're going to talk about problematic things, let's think about slavery, for example. How is it possible for forgiveness to take place in a context where you do not have these essential ingredients? So you don't have a living perpetrator. There is no identifiable perpetrator. The victims are long dead. Also, the, the victims are sort of a heterogeneous group, for example, and as are the perpetrators. So how is forgiveness possible? Is it even possible in these cases? And that's one of the things that I, I'm grappling with, I think. Well, how does the passage of time affect the perception of harm caused? Um, it doesn't seem to be in the case of slavery that the longer the period of time has passed since the actual transgression, that the perception of harm diminishes. It seems that that's not the case here. So what's going on in this in this scenario? And similarly, in the post-conflict societies that we're talking about, how is it possible that without these essential sort of forgiveness ingredients that I've talked about, that people can move forward? And that's one of the things that we're hoping to uncover. There's a danger, isn't there, that forgiveness provides the excuse you know, I regret you might have been offended by my words sort of thing. Is that forgiveness? I think that 
when it comes to forgiveness as a, a potential sort of cover for something else, there's a lot of names that we could call it. And I think the fact that a, a disingenuous forgiveness has so many names is testament to how problematic a disingenuous forgiveness could be. And I think that in the long run, if someone truly forgives another person or group for the, the past wrongdoings, that forgiveness either will come to manifest itself as peace and actual forgiveness, or the lack of forgiveness will ultimately rear its head again. So I guess as they say, you know, by their fruits, you will know them, I think. I think that this is one of those instances where the actions will always speak louder than words, even though so much of communicating forgiveness has to do with the things that we say to one another. We assume that forgiveness is permanent, that once you've granted forgiveness, you can never not ungrant it. But I don't know whether that's actually the case, whether in some circumstances people decide to forgive and then on reflection, they think there's some trigger point, there's some sort of emotional recollection of the harm caused and they unforgive the transgressor. And in that case, it kind of throws the whole schema on its head. Like the, the assumption is that forgiveness is requested, forgiveness is granted, and that's the end of it, it moves on. But I don't think people always consider forgiveness to be permanent. Justin, help us not so much in what we're hoping to uncover in this project, but help us in what you have uncovered in your earlier work on this question. One of the main points that I've found very fascinating uh, with our earlier work in this field has been on the role of identity. Um, and I think that the way in which our psychological mechanisms create and manage our social identities is going to be an interesting key in this case, because it, it's not just that our ability to hold social identities is this psychological foundation on which our perceived groups are built, where one group would need to forgive another or one group would perpetuate wrongdoing on another. It also seems that that might be one aspect of the key towards understanding group forgiveness when all of the required pieces are not there, as Kitty suggests. So far in our earlier work, we found that when someone experiences some sort of negative event or a negative uh, you know, happening during a conflict, people carry that with them. And it doesn't just become a singular memory for them. It becomes something that kind of forms their identity. That negative experience is something that they interpret within the social schema that their group has. And that causes them to really internalize that social identity as something that's critical to who they are as a person. So in the future, if someone is to attack their identity group, they take that personally because they, they don't psychologically disassociate themselves from their group. And that dynamic is one in which I think is critical for us to understand better as we move forward, because that seems to be something that holds the key in the ability to forgive in certain circumstances. In other circumstances, it seems that we have to better understand how that the information in our minds creates these identities to begin with um, because certain people who do take on an identity where part of that identity is conflict with another group, it can be very hard for them to break their understanding of the out group because what they've defined 
as part of their group and who they are and who they associate with is critically linked to some sort of stereotype to an out group that they've been in conflict with. And so if they're defining themselves within the terms of this conflict like that, then they kind of can't move past it. There's a certain information blocker, if you will, that's going to preclude any any hope of forgiveness, I think, um, not just between two people, but between that person and a sort of more numinous group that exists out there that they're attributing things to, uh, you know, rightly and in most cases wrongly. I think you're right. I think identity has got a huge role to play in a topic such as forgiveness. And alongside that, you've got the perceptions that, frankly, I suffer more than you. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I might recognize my failings, but hey, yours are much worse. And we've got that burden of perceptions. One of the first courses I ever taught were perceptions of the other, because in a way, it doesn't matter what the fact is, quote unquote, what matters is what your perception is. One of the reasons why what we're doing is kind of unique is uh, I very much approach these questions as a social scientist. And from that lens, although most of my, I guess you could say, notable contributions to knowledge have really been in the area of computation. You know, I did start as someone who was focusing on religious studies and religious violence uh, and was working on issues of, you know, community and ritual when I first met Kitty at Queen's University Belfast a decade ago. So I bring the background of the social scientist into what I do as a computer scientist. And that really helps shift the question from a question that's a purely mathematical uh, issue or even a question that has a purely mathematical answer to one where the answer always has to keep in mind that there are very real world and qualitative consequences to to what we're doing. But we've also got to bear in mind that there's this, that the ever present shadow of history shapes everything that we do. So I remember at the very beginning of the project, Justin and I were talking about, well, let's think about the Balkans. Um, you know, how far shall we go back? Um do we start at sort of the breakup of Yugoslavia? And then, you know, you could go back to, you know, the Battle of Kosovo in sort of 1300 and something. So where is the cutoff point? At what point does history determine people's narratives, people's biases? There's quite significant cultural differences in conceptualizations of forgiveness. So there's been really fascinating work looking at the differences in how people in collectivistic versus individualistic societies think about forgiveness. So for an individualist, so let's say someone from America, for example, and sort of the Western industrialized societies of the world that has sort of prime motivations of a sort of individual happiness and personal well-being, for them forgiveness is important because it's a way of attaining inner peace, if you like. They forgive because it makes them feel better and stronger. In a collectivistic society, for example, such as Japan or Korea, the importance of forgiveness is that it creates social harmony. That's what's the most important thing. It's not the individual benefit that you get from it. It's the group collective net benefit that you get from forgiveness. But also cultural differences within the US, for example. So in the South, there's sort of what's often termed this sort of culture of honour, where in some scenarios, retaliation is the culturally appropriate solution to transgression rather than forgiveness. So you have all these fascinating factors that play in alongside this very long historical narrative that we find ourselves in. And it's overwhelming, actually, but I find it fascinating because it's so dynamic. There are so many different 
possibilities in the world of forgiveness that I think it's just so worthy of exploration. And if it's possible that throughout this project, we can put together some set of resources or draw some conclusions that will be of use for mid-level community leaders or policymakers, then I think for me personally, I would be very, very happy with that. Justin, Kitty, I hope you'll forgive me for having asked some difficult questions. And listeners, I have to bring this podcast to a close. So sorry. I hope you found it a good listen. Thanks to my guests, Kitty Alone and Justin Lane. If you enjoyed the show, and I hope you did, you might want to browse our archive of podcasts, which include dialogues about peace, the abuse of history, disagreeing well, and identity. There's some meaty stuff there. And feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.